This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, this is the first time our Recovering Politicians panel is convening since the Ontario election. Doug Ford's PCs came back with a bigger majority while the opposition parties are leaderless and the Liberals face a second term without official party status. Now, that was a surprise given what the polls said about popular support. But this election set a record for low turnout, 43%. And speaking of the feedback I have from our audience, that has them quite upset. So the 83 seats won by Ford's Progressive Conservative Party came from just 41% of ballots cast. And 41% of 43% comes to just under 18%. And that is the number of Ontarians that handed the progressive conservatives their big majority. The Liberals got just eight seats compared to 31 for the NDP, though each received roughly 24% of the vote. And speaking of numbers, we have conservative leadership hopefuls bragging about their signups. So, there is a lot to talk about. The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. Now I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Howard Hampton, former Leader of the Ontario NDP. Thanks for being with us. Good afternoon, everyone. Great yep. pleasure. Let us, let us begin. Uh, let let us begin with uh, the winning team, Lisa Raitt. Your <laughs> your reaction to this really big majority. It is a really big majority. And I think what it shows is that um, Ontarians picked the leader that they wanted to pick. And, and I say leader only because we lost two leaders on that same night. Um, the, the leader of the Liberal Party of Ontario, the leader of the Democratic Party of Ontario, both resigned. And I guess because they recognized that they didn't accomplish what they needed to do, which was to take even some seats away from the progressive conservative government, and, and they were unable to do it. Uh, so the PCs should feel very good about themselves. However, they shouldn't rest on their laurels because, as you know, um, a dangerous liberal party is one that needs to fight back, and they're going to reassemble, and I'm sure they're going to be a very much competitive force in the next time around in four years. Well, it's it's interesting that you cite the Liberals, which are down to eight, and which uh, Liberal insiders have char- characterized this election as a disaster, Charles. Yeah, it is. Um, a lot of apathy out there. Bottom line, Ontarians weren't buying what the Liberals and the NDP were selling. And the Conservative government put on uh, a strong showing, and they played it properly and stayed quiet most of the way through. Uh, to ensure that they held their base. And while the raw numbers of votes showed a stronger showing for the Liberals and the NDP, but the translation of seats obviously weren't there, and that's the first possible system that we have in Ontario. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a long road to recovery now. And frankly, for me, as a Liberal, I'm a centric, and uh, we're losing our way. And that, that was evident in this last election. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that really struck me about uh, the campaign, the uh, progressive conservative campaign, they were fighting against the government you were in, Kathleen Wynne. Sure they were. And as much as, uh, uh, you know, Stephen wanted to avoid that discussion, you can't help but not be part of what you were. And instead of talking about the good things that we did, we were caught up in the the negative spin. And negative ads are are strong, that they work. I hate them but they seem to have uh, an effect in, in the outcome. And we didn't um, go after 
the record, I don't believe, as strongly as we should have in respect to Ford. But listen, the people have chosen to forgive him and to give him a pass and to allow it to be so. Whereas with Kathleen and the liberals, they, uh, they lost trust. And that's the bottom line. Howard, uh, was the problem a split of the so-called progressive vote? Well, that's part of it, but there's there's a lot more going on here. Um, Look, uh, the the fact of the matter is, in a first-past-to-post electoral system, which is what Ontario and Canada still have, you're very often going to get this kind of result. Uh, One party can get a very large majority of the seats, uh, even though they don't have a majority of the vote. Now, I, I think... What really should trouble all of us is the low turnout. And because democracies don't work very well when most people don't vote. And I I think part of what we need to look at here is we are not immune to what is going on in the United States. Right? What what is going on in the United States, and I personally, I think the United States is in very deep trouble. I would agree with you. But but where, where a majority of people start to believe that... Voting doesn't matter. Why should I vote? Uh, you know, why should I even take part? That is uh, whistling past the graveyard for democracy when that starts to happen. That is certainly happening in the United States, and I think we see some evidence that it's starting to happen here. Now, you know, why? Well, the world is not a, really a very good place right now. Uh, most ordinary people are struggling probably more than ever to try to make ends meet. I talked to all kinds of people when I was out canvassing who said, look, after I pay the hydro bill, after I pay the food bill, after I pay the gasoline bill so I can get to work and back, there's nothing left. And for a lot of people, that's where they're at. And I suspect many of those people didn't hear or see uh, anyone talking to them really in this election. Uh, they're, They're not focused on the issues that may hit us 12 years from now or 10 years from now, so I'm, I'm thinking about things like climate change, they're thinking about how do I pay the bills this month? And uh, for those people, I'm not sure they got an answer in the election, so they said, I'm not voting. I don't see anything here that interests me. I don't see anything that speaks to me. Uh, Lisa? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, um, I thought that it was, on some issues, actually hard for to tell the difference in the the platforms and the policies, especially on something that uh, I thought the government would have been vulnerable on, like long-term care. Uh, so I thought that was difficult. And this election was kind of a foregone conclusion. So I don't know, do you think that's the reason for the low turnout? Or do you agree that we're in trouble? Because I can tell you the morning after when we had our free-for-all show, that's what people were talking about, low turnout. Yeah, you know, we had low turnout in the past. Um, we've, we've dropped down to about 45% turnout when I look back a couple of elections. And what it just seems to be is that people just aren't motivated. And the job of the leader is to motivate the vote to get out, either liberal, conservative, NDP, um, the new party, whatever it is. The leader has to motivate to get their vote. How do you motivate? Good policies or you motivate by anger? And in this case, everybody was just kind of laid back. And um, there was no urgency in this election. And people, I think a lot of people even forgot to vote on that day, to be honest, <laughs> Libby. I, I wouldn't chalk it up to to this being a cataclysmic indication of, of us going in a terrible direction. Um, we'll, we'll have to see what ends up happening. But the motivation wasn't there for people to vote. And that's, that's what, I, what I attribute to is, is the leaders not lighting not lighting it on fire like last time where people wanted to change. Well, people really wanted to change last time. But by the way, there were 10 days that you could vote in advance polls. It's not like there, and it was a record number of mail-in ballots sent, but uh, 1.2 million fewer people voted. And Lisa, I mean, I I thought every, I mean, certainly from when he came in, Doug Ford moved to the, he's a centrist kind of a guy. So when I look at it, I see center right ish, center mm. and center left. Mm. I think that's I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I mean, in my writing, I did note that the the new party that came out 
uh, with the yellow signs, who is more to the right, they they took about 5% of the vote, which is consistent, I think, across the board. Um, but, you know, I think it, it does come down to leader. I know I keep going back to this leadership theme, Libby, but it does come down to leadership at the end of the day. It comes down to who is it that is actually spurring them on and motivating them to get out to vote. And if they think everything is okay, they're not going to be bothered to show up. If they're upset, they're going to, they're going to show up. And if they're really happy, they're going to show up. And I'm, uh, maybe that's just a reflection of what Ontario is right now, more, more center right than, than anything else. Charles, uh, so was it that this was a ho-hum election with tired people or are we, is our democracy in danger? No, I'm with Lisa on this one. They, they weren't motivated. We didn't do enough to inspire people to get out and vote as much as we tried. Um, and the apathy was evident. Uh, people just weren't interested. And again, that's because they were complacent to accept what was the status quo. And the fact that he got all the unions and all of the other trades and so forth on his side recognize that people are concerned about affordability, but they're concerned about having jobs. And he went after that in a big way. Every fiber in my body was opposed to some of the things that we were doing in 2018. Because I, too, was saying, why are we so busy trying to outflank the NDP in the far left when we have such a huge swath of support in the middle that we're going to vacate? Because, I don't know, ideology, or we were nervous, we were pissing everybody off, and that is still the case today. We haven't made enough to recover some of those uh, relationships that we had in the past. And frankly, people care about themselves. We can talk about the environment. We can talk about big issues. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to their pocketbooks, it matters to them. And Ford, you may say he bought votes with all the the checks that he gave out. But bottom line, he's promising them jobs going forward. And that mattered to people. Uh, You know, we will um, get back to the whole question of uh, the Del Duca personality. But I want to ask Howard, uh, did Andrea Horvath do the right thing, resigning right on the spot? Absolutely. Look, uh, Andrea deserves credit uh, for leading the NDP through uh, some, some pretty difficult times. Okay. Um, in, in, in many ways, the NDP is still recovering from its experience in government. All right. And I, you know, I was, uh, I got to see that up close, perhaps, uh, too, too up close. But one of the things that I certainly recognized after the time in government was a whole lot of NDP supporters or people who had historically been NDP supporters were no longer in the NDP universe. That was, that was the impact of being in government. Now, some of those folks, it's taken like 20 years, 25 years for some of those folks to come back. Um, and in, in fact, probably in that time too, the NDP universe has changed somewhat. And I, I think Andrea deserves full credit for growing the NDP and helping to reestablish some new bases when perhaps some of the old bases aren't as potent as they used to be. But I also know that's come at tremendous cost to her personally. And so, I, one, uh, I think she had decided before this election this was going to be the last election for her. Two, I think she's decided that she deserves a personal life uh, after uh, many years of hard work in politics, both municipally and provincially. And, and so for her, it was the right time to go. And for the NDP, it's the right time to be thinking about the direction it wants to go in. For all parties, there were some signals in this election, all right? For the NDP, I think there has to be some introspection about the party's relationship with the labor movement. Now, I'm one who believes that the NDP should have a very close working relationship with the labor movement. There are other people who believe, you know, in what I would call the new politics, and, and you're talking there more about the politics, identity politics. But I think the NDP has to make some fundamental decisions there. It also has to make some fundamental decisions about, um, you know, what's really important to the party. Uh, if you look at the outcomes, the NDP focused a lot on Toronto, um, and most of its seats in Toronto returned. But it seemed to have lost Brampton altogether. And if, uh, for anybody who thinks that the NDP politics in the GTA is the same as the NDP politics in downtown Toronto, 
if, if, you, if you think that, uh, then I think you're missing a really important difference in, in Ontario politics. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think Brampton probably uh, likes to be on the side of the winner. Charles uh, Del Duca, um, not that exciting. You pointed that out. <laughs> Hard trouble connecting. Also, he, there were some issues with some of the labor unions there, I understand, like uh, kind of local fights. Yeah, I mean, there's been some history, and, uh, you know, Stephen was associated with one of the trade unions that have been going through many trade wars over years, and that still festered. And then 2018, we put forward uh, restrictions on where the trades can operate uh, in Ontario, and that created even more havoc. We should never have gotten into those fights, uh, but uh, the party took sides, and that still is resonating to this day. But more importantly, uh, other trade unions got involved, and they were sold on the 413. They were sold on the message to do more auto, do more jobs, do more construction, do more stimulus and economic stimulus and investments. And we weren't talking about that. We were actually talking the opposite. And I think that, 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 that that's, a, that's a function. And, of course, Andrew Horvath, to her credit, uh, has done quite a bit to maintain the visibility of the NDP, and she's been a strong advocate. And she's, um, she's out there. She kind of seems like she's always mad and mean and upset, but she's trying to get her points across. And who knows? I mean, maybe she will take a pause, or maybe she'll run for the mayor of Hamilton, and maybe Stephen will try to become mayor of Vaughan. I don't know what they're, how much energy they have after this last election, but uh, we'll see what comes next. But it's going to be a tough road. So who Give might be past fights? So who might be uh, uh, who a candidate for the liberal leadership? I mean, we have Mitzi Hunter who ran the last time, but she also would have the win taint. Yeah, I mean, this is a long ride back. I mean, the first job of rebuilding the party would have been official status, so we can have resources and teams and money and, and, and staffing. We don't have any of that. In fact, when the NDP did not get official status, you know, Dalton McGinty gave it to them, recognizing that we need a voice in the opposition. <laughs> don't expect that from Ford. to have people kept in check. So my worry is the opposition is now very weak. Uh, and, you know, you know, Ford and his team, they'll be out there pushing forward their agenda, but I'm hoping that they'll be kept in check uh, for the benefit of all of us, even for themselves, frankly. I, 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 have to inter- I have to interject. Dalton yep. McGinty gave the NDP nothing. We won a by-election. Uh, That's so, what happened. Okay. So, all right. Andrea, uh, Andrea I, I, Horvath yeah, won a by-election, but, but and the NDP had the numbers. Is, there was some respect and, to enable us to have opposition, right? We need to have a voice on the opposite side. And I, I don't worry about that right now because both parties, primarily the NDP now, who is the official op- is still the official opposition, will have to regroup. I mean, they're more important right now than the Liberals in terms of keeping everybody in check. Uh, Howard, uh, names, uh, who are likely candidates for the leadership? I mean, I can think of Merritt Stiles and maybe Kristen Wong-Tam. Well, I think uh, you're going to find that there's some pretty strong people elected in Ottawa, some very strong people elected uh, from the Kitchener-Waterloo region, uh, some strong people elected from uh, the London area, uh, some strong people elected from the Niagara Peninsula and some strong people elected from Toronto. And uh, there's a uh, young woman uh, from uh, Sudbury, fluently bilingual, uh, very popular in the legislature and very popular in the NDP. So I think uh, in terms of an, an NDP race, you're probably going to see four or five people uh, put their names forward. And I think they will be largely representative of the geography of Ontario. Uh, yeah, big, a big race. Oh, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, I, I think it's always a good thing. I, I mean, you know, federally, I think part of the reason the Conservatives are having uh, an increase in membership is because it is a large race. And you've got people from various parts of the country who, par- who are part of that race. So whenever you have that kind of, of, uh, of uh, effort, you generate a lot of interest and you generate uh, a lot of activity. And I, and I think that, that would be, that's important not just for the NDP, I think it's important for Ontario right now. Uh, speaking of the conservative race, and uh, uh, we unfortunately lost Lisa Charles, uh, so we have this uh, 
bragging of the numbers of the signups for for uh, membership to be able to vote for the new leader closed. And uh, Patrick Brown's camp announced they had signed up 150,000 people. Uh, then uh, Pierre Poilievre's camp said, oh, 311,000. And then Jean Charest said that he has a path because of the waiting of that. W- what do you make of all that when you look at it? Well, from here until September is still a, way, is still a ways, and now all of them will be going after all those that signed up. I'm not convinced that just because they signed up under Pelliev or under Patrick Brown that they're, con- they're committed to that vote. Uh, I'm not sure if, that how, if that's how it works. It's not like a delicate a delegated convention where you have your first vote goes towards the one you signed up with. I think there's an opportunity for them to start swaying some of these signups. And I'm not convinced that they're all conservatives. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing stories. Like a lot of folks signed up just because they wanted to participate in the process. Oh, I know people. I know yeah. people who are uh, quite left-wing. <laughs> yeah. Well, they said they would sign up. So we'll see. I mean, uh, Pierre obviously has the front-runner status on this one. He signed up, so he says, a lot more people. Uh, but will they reflect afterwards and determine maybe, you know, winning the country is more important than winning the leadership of this race? And, and I think they'll, try, they'll, they'll work on that component. But again, you've seen what happens in the past. They'll vote someone who may be more extreme. They start to shift over to the middle and be more moderate, and then they get slammed by their own people, and then they, you know, they eat their own in this one. So I don't know. I'm not sure how it's going to play out in the end. They are uh, pretty well known for eating their own. Howard, do you have a view? Well, I think it's far too early uh, to to make any assessment. I mean, the the dynamics of this race are are uh, I think just in their very early stages. And and uh, you know, I, I've, I've I've watched other leadership races of other parties. Uh, you know, I I remember watching, uh, for example, uh, Stefan Dion winning the federal Liberal leadership race. And I talked with friends of mine who. Who were there? Who were part of it? Who's who? Just they were just shocked. They couldn't believe that it happened. Like, how could this happen? Uh, so, uh, and you know, and I've I've watched leadership races. I think of Mike Lignachev, you know, who was oh, uh, yeah. almost almost anointed leader. So, so you know, the, the dynamics of what can happen in leadership races. Um, if, uh, you, you're better to watch and listen carefully than to uh, speculate. Well, you know, and they, they, they might, the same thing might happen, I suspect, if they decide to anoint Mark Carney. But Charles, you know, sometimes I look at these races and with their really complicated rules, and I think they're engineered so that you get your second choice or your third choice. Yeah, and, and, and they play to it. <laughs> Obviously, Patrick Brown is playing to it in a big way. He's hoping for everybody to pick him as a second choice. Right, and, but, uh, but you up end up with, a, you know, a, maybe a Stephen Del Duca who uh, maybe doesn't have the right personality for that job? Well, I, I'm, well Stephen, is, it's, that's history now, right? Yeah. He did his bit. He came forward. He worked hard. I give him credit. He was out there lonely many times, traveling many distances to meet with five or ten people at a time. So he did some grunt work. But obviously there wasn't enough to to attract people. And I think part of... Uh, the selection is also based on personality, charisma. I don't know. You want more people to be like Howard Hampton, for example. He led his party and he made, he attracted people. Um, and I think the, the conservatives in this leadership race, they're not they enough very people. charismatic individuals, but they're very extreme in, in, in the likes of Pierre. God, they have silver tongues. They know how to speak. But can they really connect afterwards with the normal Ontarians or normal Canadians, I should say, across the country? And we'll it's... See. It's very Charles, ironic because thank you for that, that comment, but not enough people in, in the Howard <laughs> Hampton. Well, which which brings up, if I may, a lot of chatter about mergers here for the Liberals and the and the NDP. Howard, I'm afraid of that. I I, I love you, man. I think you're great, but I, I don't see myself as that guy. I don't I don't know if the brand is enough to be a merge. And uh, I know there's a lot of discussions around this. Is that serious, really? Well, no, no, no. no look. It, you, you've got, you know, the day after the football, you know, you have your Monday morning quarterbacks who who uh, replay the game and think they know everything. And it's very similar in politics. You know, the day after the event or the week after the event, you have your week after uh, quarterbacks who who uh, think they're they're experts. 
the Liberal Party and NDP are, are very different, and they they, they appeal uh, very to very different audiences uh, and very different approaches to politics. And and I I uh, I, I agree with Charles that you know I don't I just I don't think you're going to see anything come of this. The the reality, though, and I think you're seeing this happening in Ottawa, is uh, you have a liberal government that's a minority. You have a prime minister who I don't think will run again, and he just wants to make his way safely to the finish line in terms of the government that he's now part of. And so he's willing to make a deal that assures his government that they're not going to face some sort of surprise uh, in a vote. And he's done that. And the NDP wanted to extract some policy uh, commitments. Uh, so that works for them. But uh, there's, they're very different animals in terms of how the NDP and the Liberals approach politics. Uh, finally, we're, we're running out of time, so we are watching the Boris Johnson saga. Uh, is, is there any kind of a lesson for all of us in democracies here? Does it, does it mark a turning point in a certain kind of politics, Charles? Or is it just, you know, time's run out for the guy? Maybe. Uh, yeah, it seems like his days are limited. And, you know, depending upon what he does with the cabinet shuffle, there's a lot of disgruntled individuals in the party. Too many, frankly. It's going to be very tough for him to hold on. There's some degree. There's he obviously has his authority, but the moral authority, I think he's lost. And that's he had. I don't think he ever had moral authority. Well, you know what I mean. <laughs> so I guess that's lessons for all of us, I, not just the. I, I think there, I think there is a lesson. Uh, don't ever let your ego be bigger than your brain. Yeah. I. I mean. I mean. Among other parts. It, well, this guy is is uh, you know has. Uh, I'm sure, you know, he sees splendor whenever he looks in the mirror, but I think he has, uh, I think he has run out of, of, uh, whatever that artificial substance was. And I think people in the UK now see him for what he is. And I think his own party now sees him for what he is. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. We are out of time. So thank you so much, Charles Sousa and Howard Hampton. Talk soon. Bye-bye. All the best. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And people, what are the worst roads that you either drive or cycle on? I'm giving you an opportunity to vent when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. What are the worst roads that you drive or ride your bike on? There are a lot to choose from, believe me. But the CAA has come up with the definitive list, and the top spot, the worst of the worst, is in Hamilton. It is Barton Street, and Toronto is not far behind. Eglinton Avenue West is number two, and three other roads are in the top 10. That's Eglinton Avenue East, Lakeshore Boulevard East, and Finch Avenue West. Now, two of the top 10 are in a place that's supposed to be a bucolic oasis, Prince Edward County. So again, tell me, what are the places that you drive or bike on that uh, are just really bad? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Teresa DeFelice, Assistant Vice President of Government and Community Relations for CAA South Central Ontario, and Constable Sean Shapiro of the Toronto Police's Traffic Safety Program. Hello, and thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Yes, same here. Teresa, so first of all, uh, tell me how you came to this list. It, it, people voted, right? Absolutely. We had uh, the annual CA Worst Roads campaign uh, launched uh, a few short months ago. And we give people a, a spread of time to actually go and nominate the roads that they are experiencing some frustration with. 
Okay, so uh, I don't know Barton Street in Hamilton. I certainly know Eglinton Avenue West, and and it's like uh, plus ça change. It's it, this, you know. I know people who are now betting if the construction on Eglinton uh, will happen in their lifetime. <laughs> so I yeah, mean, well, I, it's it's been a, a lesson in patience for sure. Um, but of course, this is one of the biggest transit projects you know, that has been undertaken in this country uh, with a mix of tunneling and above ground and a lot of different, you know, lane reduction. So it, it has been challenging for sure. And some of the voters took to it, you know, because of poor road surface like potholes, but some of it has also been because of the congestion and largely as a result of, of some of those construction points. Well, there are tons of construction points in Toronto and on top of the potholes, Sean Shapiro, how much worse does it make it for drivers? Well, potholes, if people are, are you can certainly uh, get some damage on your vehicle if they're really out of control. But uh, folks don't seem to understand that when you do speed or, uh, you know, hit these potholes while trying to perform other maneuvers, uh, it can change the way your vehicle handles it. And it could be unsafe, uh, which is why we want people to follow the speed limit and slow down. Yeah, um, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a you know, there's, uh, smallish city streets, there's construction, there's, there's potholes. Uh, Teresa, are, are some of the roads on this list, are they newly there or are most of them, you know, uh, repeat offenders? There are, there are some that are, uh, repeat for sure. But as you mentioned in your intro, Lakeshore Boulevard East is new to the Ontario top 10 list. Um, and, and while some of that is about road maintenance, uh, another major reason why people nominated Lakeshore Boulevard East is because uh, they feel that there needs to be better road signs and, and markings in navigating. That's also, you know, the location around where the Gardner East ramp has been taken down. So there's a lot of construction there too. So a bit of an easy fix in terms of, of, you know, changing some signage to help people navigate the roadway there. You know, that it, that's not the only place where signage is a problem. I mean, the, there are a lot of places where it's very confusing if you're not familiar. How big a problem is that, Sean? Well, at the end of the day, uh, there are some intersections that, that could be plotted better. But, it, you know, if the driver isn't uh, familiar with it, unfortunately, they need to, to again, slow down and uh, make efforts to do everything they're doing safely. Uh, I can understand that some things are unsafe. What happens, uh, what I see happening often, is people making last-minute changes of direction because uh, they've just figured out they're going the wrong way or they have to make a turn. Uh, our advice is, is, you know, take a few moments, maybe... Uh, Go the next the next block over, make a safe change of direction, uh, or go around the block. But the, it's the last minute change when people aren't sure where they are that causes a lot of issues. Okay, let's take a call from Bridget in Toronto. Hello, Bridget. Hi, Libby. Um, two items. The first is really about speed, and I think my first uh, comment has more to do with probably the OPP, I guess, than than in the Toronto um, Police, but. As someone he's, who's um, now spending more time outside of Toronto, I'm always amazed at the speed that people go on country roads. So I had to travel between Buckhorn and Bob Cajun on the weekend. I think it's Highway 36. The speed limit was 80. I was going 90. They wanted to go 100. I can't tell you how many people passed me and wanted to go around me. So I guess, uh, are we ever going to be looking at those areas? Because I really found it quite dangerous. More more so than the bad roads in the cities. Well, I mean, those are obstacles, right? Those are things, yeah, for sure. It's a totally different issue. Um, but yeah, and I, you know, and for me in the roads in the city, that's another issue too. I mean, the, the whole idea of promoting um, cycling in the city, we're just not there. We don't have the infrastructure. It's too dangerous. Okay, Bridget, thank you for your call. 
And uh, people, the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. What are the worst roads that you bike or drive on and why? And I've got to say, you know, I drive through city streets that do not appear to be on that list, but they're bad. And you have a situation, Teresa, and I don't know how many of the worst roads are in this situation. It, it could be a narrower street to begin with. You've got car, cars parked on it. You've got trucks stopping. You've got construction. And then you have to try and maneuver around these extremely large potholes. Yes, for sure that one of the things when you, you live in a densely populated city like Toronto, um, you know, you have to constantly be diligent about what's happening on the roadway, um, as John was saying, because there are a lot of things, there's a lot of activity happening. There's parked vehicles, there are, you know, uh, bicycles navigating, there are people crossing. So it's, it's you know, you need to be super vigilant. And in some cases where, you know, people are trying to avoid potholes and things like that, um, there's not a lot of room to do so. And that really is comes into play around lowering your speed, being aware so that you're, you're not finding yourselves all of a sudden, you know, uh, deep into a, a pothole uh, at a speed that you probably um, could cause some damage to your vehicle. Hmm. Okay, everybody, hold that thought. We are going to take another break. Let me give the numbers before we go to break. Again, uh, people, I'd love to hear from you about which roads you find to be the most dangerous. Uh, And I left out pedestrians before. Some of them can be very dangerous for pedestrians. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And we will be back with more on Ontario's Worst Roads. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about the province's worst roads, and we'd like to hear from you about your experience. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Sean Shapiro, aside from slowing down, do you have any driving tips for people navigating all of this? And by the way, now, in addition to all of that, we've got Cafe T.O., well, at the end of the day, I keep saying slow down and it's, it's have patience because these two problems are going to be with us for uh, at very least the summer. I don't think there's any end in sight. CAPATO adds extra uh, or creates some reductions in lanes. So we're going to take a little longer to get to the places we want to go. Uh, there's a lot of apps out there like Waze that help you navigate around these. The problem with that is it sends you into residential areas uh, to bypass the main streets and it causes issues for the people who live on the streets. Hmm. Uh, but in terms of driving technique? Well, te- technique is uh, the, uh, I, I don't know about how much I can improve people's driving, but at the end of the day, it's trying to be courteous uh, to one another. We want to make sure that we're paying attention to everything we're doing. So speed is a huge thing. The slower you go, the more time you have to react. And, uh, you know, when you're dealing with a lot of folks who are all frustrated going in the same direction as you. There's nowhere to go. So patience is possibly the, the best uh, advice I can give you right now. Uh, Teresa, so double the number of Toronto roads appeared on this year's list compared to last year. Do you have any thoughts about why that is? I think we had uh, a lot more people, you know, take to the campaign this year. People are out and about again uh, and experiencing, you know, either commutes if they're they're back at their work location or, you know, just experiencing life again and, and uh uh, taking um, stock of being able to uh, attend events and things like that. And Toronto's got a, a large population, so it's it's not a surprise to see that it's able to catapult some uh, roads uh, and bubble to the surface. What's interesting, too, about this year's campaign is we had about 29% of the people who took the campaign to raise the issue of no or poor cycling infrastructure as well as 20% uh, who said they were nominating roads due to poor walking infrastructure. 
So, you know, people are, are taking to the annual CA Worst Roads campaign, not just from a driver perspective and talking about poor road surface, but also about the type of infrastructure they want to see in their, their community. Well, yeah, that's right. There are a lot of places where they there's construction or there's something else, and they say, you've got to walk on the other side of the street, and it's dangerous. Correct, and, and this is a province-wide campaign, uh, you know, for that, that but in some places, they just we don't, even in the city, there are some places that just don't have sidewalks, even though we're in, you know, local urban roads. Um, number three on the list, which you mentioned was Prince Edward County, Barker Street. What, you know, there was some surface issues in terms of poor road maintenance or pothole damage, but that was one of the ones where people wanted more walking infrastructure, and that could be bigger sidewalks or just sidewalks, period. Well, and especially in a place like that, where you have a lot of people who are on holiday. Correct. It's a huge tourism, uh, you know, community. It's also a huge farming community. So having a couple of roads on the list is not surprising there. They are, they're dependent on, on getting, you know, goods and services delivered in and out of those communities in and around uh, Prince Edward County. And, and so infrastructure is really important. I think we saw that last week in a, in a provincial election. And I think um, although cost of living is high on people's mind, we're heading into a municipal election this fall where I think, you know, how people are getting around and what they want to see in terms of where their dollars are allocated um, are also going to be top of mind. Let's hear from Roger in Caledon. Hello, Roger. Hi. Uh, I just want to comment about, um, about you had a, a um, listener call and say that she was doing 90 in a country road up in uh, Northern Ontario there. Um, and people were passing her at a hundred. Is that right? Yep. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this. I feel bad saying this, but I'll tell you honestly, Libby, there's an unwritten rule out there. I, I drive for a living. So I know like if you do 20 kilometers or under, you're not going to get pulled over. Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to let, uh, I'm going to let Sean Shapiro speak to that. Roger, thanks for your call. I know that a lot of people, especially in, in the country, uh, feel that, um, they can set their own speed limits. Actually, we have people in the city of Toronto and all over the GTA. And as I just got back from Florida, people in Florida too, everyone seems to take their chances going over the speed limit. And you're not legally allowed to exceed the speed limit, not by any margin. There's no permissible uh, speeding that can be done. You can be charged for one kilometer over. And we do enforce speed limits. Uh, you don't have to hit them uh, the 20 kil- uh, kilometer mark to get a speeding ticket. We've often seen people pulled over for 15, even 10 over, depending on what the speed limit is in the area. So uh, really, we want people to, to drive at or below the speed limit. That's the legal uh, and safe way to go. Yeah. Um, and Sean, I'd like to bring something up that's not strictly with this conversation on bad roads, but stop signs in residential areas. People just blow through them. I have seen some horrible driving when it comes to stop signs. Uh, They're not optional. Uh, It's not look both ways and just roll through. You you need to come to a complete stop. It's a total, uh, you know, stopping of motion. There should be a transfer from the front wheels to the rear weight. And then you continue once it's safe to do so. And the folks who are just blowing through the stop signs, uh, A, will likely get charged. I I used to set up the stop signs on a regular basis. It's a pet peeve for me. But those are where collisions occur. People get used to the idea of just going through. And it's extremely dangerous. Can, can I send you an address where you might want to? S- I would set love up. that. I'll forward it to our enforcement group. We have uh, our Vision Zero enforcement team, our motor squad, who love going to these places to find people who choose to make our roads unsafe. Because the the one I'm thinking of, not only do people they don't sort of roll gently through it, they blow through it. I I remember physically. I I stopped someone who had passed a driver who was stopping for a stop sign. They passed them oh into oncoming goodness. traffic at the stop sign because well, they had somewhere to go. It was obviously more important. Uh, and then they, they followed uh, the next stop sign. They also went through, and they ended up getting two tickets. And, some and how much there. How much is the ticket? It's $110 for uh, for filling the stop or a stop sign. It's three demerit points. And when you combine those with other factors, it may be careless driving, which has six demerit points, and a heftier fine. Okay. Well, I hope uh, people going through stop signs are listening, and people... 
Please be patient if you're calling in. We do have a few minutes left in the segment, and I will get to your calls. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We're talking about the worst roads in Ontario. Uh, Teresa, uh, what is the timeline for do th- when the when the roads appear on this? Uh, do you get action on them or not? It, it all depends. We, we've been very fortunate and successful uh, that sometimes uh, you know a couple of months afterward we have um, local politicians reaching out, letting us know they're going to be making an announcement. That was the case with Windsor last year. Um, because uh, the mayor there specifically wanted to highlight that he was allocating funds because he wanted to see that road off the list um, in the regional area. And sometimes it could take a little longer. Our our team, our government relations team, will will be sending out correspondence and um, you know offering to meet with municipalities to talk about some of the feedback that we got through the campaign and and provide that input and insight as. Um, uh, municipal governments are planning their infrastructure budgets, right? So that this is an ongoing thing that happens every year. And so there's all, all information is good information. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, <clears throat> what would you tell people about these roads? Is, is the best thing to try to avoid them? <clears throat> I don't think that you can always uh, avoid. It really depends on your, on, on where you're going um, you know, as, as Sean said, you know, there are apps that will help you sort of, um, avoid really difficult roads or highly congested roads, but sometimes it's taking you through communities that you're not familiar with. And, and we agree from a safety standpoint, people have to have some respect and, and recognize that they're, they're going through residential roads, communities they're not familiar with and that the extra patience and extra time is needed. Um, and plan ahead. Uh, you know, we, that's another thing too is think about where you're going. Think about your routes. Plan ahead to give yourself extra time. Um, you know, watching ahead, not driving distracted. Don't keep your phone in a place that's going to distract you. Uh, or, you know, have your presets on, on what, where you're traveling to, whether it's your radio and listening uh, to your show, Libby. But, um, you want to make sure that that's all taken care of. So you could really focus and understand what's happening, seeing the behaviors of other drivers ahead of you may be an indication that there's a pothole up ahead. We asked members, you know, what did they think when they saw someone swerving? And almost all respondents felt it was a result of someone trying to avoid a road condition, a sunken sewer grade or a pothole. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, so people are paying attention to a certain extent. Uh, do you have anything in the way of timelines? I mean, the pothole blitz, Toronto has an annual pothole blitz, and I believe what, when did it start in March? But, you know, it seems like there's still a lot to be done. It was a really tough winter. You know, there was a lot of snow. Um, we also had these meltdown periods, so there was all of a sudden a lot of standing water and then very cold spells where it, where it freeze. So you've got this constant freeze-thaw period, and that, that can really create an even bigger hole or, you know, a crack in the pavement to become a hole. And so that is a challenge. We know that the City of Toronto crews um, were a little bit delayed this year in, in tackling as many potholes right off, off the bat because they were still dealing with the maintenance um, from the winter season. Um, but they've been busy, as, as many other municipalities have, trying to do patchwork uh, until some of those bigger repairs can be scheduled and tendered and, and get the job done. Mm-hmm. And, and how long do you think it will take, or will that just run into the next pothole season? Well, the challenge is we're, we're already behind um, in road repair. So there is a, what's called a road repair deficit or backlog. And, you know, almost every municipality has that. And it really is a result of the fact that, you know, the, the, these are big, expensive projects. The money is not always there in terms of, of, you know, you have so many dollars. And construction period is short in, in our season. So you have to prioritize those projects. But there is a significant backlog of road repair in Ontario. And every year, more and more roads are coming due to be repaired. But what we do know from research that we've we've worked with and done is that, you know, if you can spend a dollar on pavement 
preservation, that could save you six to ten dollars later on, um, or mitigate just having to spend six to ten dollars because you didn't do that that uh, preservation, and you can't, and and the road's gotten into an even worse state of repair. Sean Shapiro, we've been talking about the weather. What about heavy rain like we have today? Rain's a big deal, and actually, uh, something that many don't know about the snow tires. If you're still running on snow tires, uh, they don't do very well in the rain. Uh, you, you might find uh, hydroplaning being an issue. They don't stop as quickly. So if you're still running in uh, uh, on winters, it's a good indication you should possibly take well slow down, give yourself more time to stop, but also go and get your uh, your all seasons or your summers put on. Uh, additionally, uh, rain and cooling is is a big issue for uh, for loss of control, loss of traction. So keep it slow, and uh, we want to get to where we're going safely. Mm-hmm. So can we expect to have smoother roads uh, before the summer is done? Uh, is done, Teresa? You know, we're hoping there's lots of construction projects uh, in in the making, and we're, I'm sure we're going to see more. And and so, you know, everybody's just got to uh, hang tight. I think people are willing to tolerate um, road repair if it means, you know, some of the inconvenience that comes with road repair, uh, if it means that the roads are going to get fixed. Sean Shapiro, what about rates and numbers of collisions? Uh, are, are they going up? Uh, I haven't looked uh, at, at the stats recently. We we have seen some increases as people have returned uh, to work in the roads, and uh, that's that's. I can't tell you if it's if uh, how much higher it is than normal, but I believe it is a slight increase. Uh, I don't think we can attribute it to the road quality. It's more the driving, and uh, you know people should be focused on what they're supposed to be doing, which is driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teresa, we are getting to the end of our time. Um, what are you hoping people take away from this? That the CA, annual CA Worst Roads campaign is a place to have a voice. It can be very difficult on your own to sort of escalate some of these issues. And, and you're in good company because people do want something done. And so by acting and engaging uh, with the campaign, uh, it's an opportunity to collectively mm-hmm. Uh, raise some attention to getting some of the roads in your community fixed. And John Shapiro, what would you like to leave us with? Just that uh, every every day on the road is an adventure. And uh, if you can pack the time and patience to get to your destination safely, it can be an enjoyable experience. It's when you start, uh, you know, having expectations or giving yourself a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. That's when the stress goes up and we're more likely to see collisions situations. Okay, thank you so much, Teresa DeFelice and Sean Shapiro. Always a pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.